So my name is Denise Farmy. Um, I live in Yorkshire and I'm 55 and um, I used to work at Arts Council England. I left Arts Council England in May, having given my notice in, in February uh, this year in 2023 and I had been working there since March 2008. So a long time. A long time, yeah, a long time um, and, uh, you know, um, I guess a significant part of my life, you know, my children were uh, kind of 10 and 2 type thing and um, yeah, so through my kind of parenting part of my life. Why did you go for a job at the Arts Council to start with? Is that something that interests you? Are you an artist? I trained as an artist and then gradually I worked in arts development in local authorities. Um, I mean, the Arts Council is a, is a really progressive organisation and a, actually a, a, a very good employer. And, you know, for... And, you know, in the arts, which you'll probably know, there's... Is, is quite low paid and a quite a precarious um career and particularly for parents uh so so as a job it was um really exciting opportunity because you actually learn so much working there uh you understand how the how the arts ecology operates you see lots of different artwork you meet lots of different practitioners and you work with a brilliant cohort of colleagues um, and it's it's a very thinking, thoughtful organisation. Obviously, in 15 years, it changes a lot and it's partly directed by government, partly directed by artists and audiences. Things change over 15 years. So tell me a little bit about what it was like to work there, who you worked with, what the general work ethic was, the atmosphere, that kind of thing. Yeah, as I say, over 15 years, things changed a lot. It went through various restructures, which had quite profound changes uh, in terms of the workplace. But it was always, you know, quite a positive place to work, you know, quite supportive of uh, its employees. And, you know, my job was primarily to to manage a portfolio of organisations in terms of managing their, their grants um, and also to advise artists uh, in, in how they could get funding from the Arts Council, but also quite a bit of just, I guess we'd call it being a critical friend to artists, organi- artists or organisations um, and a little bit of kind of thinking about, you know, how, how audiences develop in the arts and how we can better support that. And then what changed? I guess probably the arts changed. I guess the arts and the workforce gradually changed. Um, we'd already, you know, when I joined the Arts Council, it was it was um, 2008, so obviously there's a change of government at that point and the, the financial crisis, but the arts had already experienced significant changes post-97 um, with the Blair government kind of thinking about, you know, if arts are going to be publicly funded, uh, what are their purpose in society? So there'd already been a discussion about what does the arts do and what's its purpose in society? And and the Blair government had already looked at what the social impact of the arts are. And, and that, and alongside that, the arts had started to be funded by the National Lottery. 
and, and that had completely changed the funding profile of our sector, you know, had a profound effect on the funds that were available. How? Because, you know, if you think about previously, we would have just had funds drawn from the Treasury to now have access to a small creamed off section of the National Lottery um, Good Causes. I think there's 11 Good Cause distributors from the National Lottery. Uh, so that's another another massive source of income that came into the arts in the late 90s, perhaps earlier, but a little bit earlier than the late 90s, mid 90s, um, under, under the major government. And that led to a huge expansion in the arts, you know, all of these new buildings, um, the Lowry in Manchester, many, many others uh, that, that built the built the infrastructure of the arts that we have now in, the, in 2020 came out of that investment from the National Lottery Programme. But that also meant you couldn't just think about arts investment as purely a kind of discretionary support for what you might term high art. It had to have some kind of um, public purpose and public recognition and some kind of public kickback. And, um, and that led to thinking, well, what is the social purpose of the arts? So by, you know, 2000 onwards, there was a lot more pressure on what are the benefits to the public who are paying for this um, from, from arts investment. And, you know, I was absolutely a, a um, child of 97, I suppose. You know, I started my career under Blair under New Labour, absolute proponent of, um, of, of demonstrating social benefit. And, and in many ways, I still am. Um, so that was a huge a period of expansion for the arts. Uh, and it was terrific. There were lots of new jobs. There were lots of new venues. There was, a, um, you know, an expansion, expansion of the workforce. But there was also an expansion in audiences, most importantly. So by the time we got to 2008, that agenda was, was shifting again. Uh, it's not just what the social impacts, how many people are coming, it's who's coming. Um, you know, who is, who is involved in the arts? Let's work out more about who are those individuals. Uh, you know, at the same time, we have the, the Equality Act coming in in 2010 that starts to set out the protected characteristics. So... So what started as let's have a cultural um, hinterland in this country that everybody can be involved in, uh, in our cities and towns, starts to say, well, come on, prove, prove what you're doing and prove it against new legislation, uh, which was the protected characteristics. So that's great. That's, that's, that's all understandable. Um, of course, class isn't a protected characteristic. Uh, so that's a bit of an issue because obviously a lot of the buildings that we put, were building at that uh, pre-2010 were in places which didn't have um, state-of-the-arts arts buildings. So how do you prove who's coming? We well, start to break it down against, not class, you start to break it down against protected characteristics like um, their sex, their sexuality, disability. So it starts to become ever more instrumental in terms of, of, of how you distribute funding. And I was completely supportive of that until at some point uh, in the, actually 
2018-ish, those categories started to not be real. Um, And we started to see those, those, you know, the idea of sex not being a real category uh, creeping into the arts. At the same time as having had the Me Too movement in which um, uh, female practitioners in the arts, primarily in performing arts and film, were talking about the sexual harassment they'd had to sustain to build their careers. So at the same time as that was coming out in the press, in the arts, in theatre, we were also having a push against, well, sex isn't a real category. Anybody can join this category. So there was kind of like, there's a reality and then there's a theory. And at the time I, I didn't, I couldn't quite read what was happening. But gradually, you know, that crept into the workforce. And um, I think it was quite poisonous. When did things start to go wrong for you in your job? I mean, you know, because I've been there such a long time and because I am who I am and because I have many supportive colleagues, um, I'd always felt able to say what I think. So I said what I thought. Uh, by 2018, 2019, I was starting to say what I think, which was, well, I, I didn't want to use pronouns because that that was clumsy and it didn't make sense. And I knew there was only two sexes. So really, it was just compelled speech. Um, so I started to say uh, what what I thought and that started to feel uncomfortable in 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 spaces. And then I started to think I would never discuss this um externally because that would be political even though it's absolutely obvious that men and women exist it started to feel like saying that was a political statement which so by 2018 2019 i started to be worried about worried about it and then i started looking at um the data sets we were using which are still filtering through in the arts and I noticed that the data set for female uh, includes female and trans women. Uh, so it wasn't possible in Arts Council data just to say female. Uh, it included another set of people who aren't female. Um, and I realised that that didn't just affect uh, in fact, it didn't affect me in the workplace because our workplace had a slightly different data set, but it did affect all of the funding that we gave out in terms of the arts organisations that we funded and all of their audiences that were accessing it because that data set was used against those audiences. And, and I thought, well, this is completely bizarre because this is the arts is a public place. It isn't just an office. Uh, it's It's the place where ideas... Um, principles, um, imagination, uh, play, all of that is exercised in the arts. But if it starts to be categorised by nonsensical data sets, then there is a political theory being pushed, whether or not those organisations want to push it or not. They have to because of the funder. So, so I thought that was a political statement that affected the whole country. Um, and I raised that uh, with my um, executive board and there was a bit of back and forward, but not a great deal of uh, thinking. 
And I was concerned that that influence had crept in because at some point in the uh, pre-2015, I think, uh, the Arts Council had been one of the, the top 100 Stonewall champions. It isn't anymore, and it, it, it had stopped quite a long time ago because of the onerous nature of the monitoring from Stonewall. But I, I, I could see that that categorisation had crept in to a public funder. So I was concerned that we still had some engagement, very, very limited engagement with Stonewall. They're, they're not really involved. Um, so I kept raising this, well, we're making a political statement here, and it's quite a profound political statement that affects the millions of people that engage with the arts. And I, and I got nowhere. Um, so obviously, you know, I worked in an office, so I was interested in reports and data and... Um, funding applications and, you know, quite dry experience of the arts in many ways. And then I went to a friend's, uh, well, she wasn't a friend at the time, actually. I went to a studio group in which a woman had been called a turf and having been at that studio group for 14 years, um, she had been ousted from the studio group and she, when I went to her studio's, um, open studio her, she was whispering and her studio was surrounded by trans flags and I, I realised at that point it's not about data although I am obsessed with data it's about bullying this is just about bullying and misogyny and it's got a grip hold through an, a, a kind of made up ideology so when it occurred to you, what did it feel like to suddenly face up to the reality that this was about misogyny and not progressiveness or inclusivity? That's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was actually, um, it was quite a big shock because, you know, I'm completely, I did, you know, an MA in art history. I was completely... Uh, into post-colonial, post-feminism, you know, it was a massive shock. And I, I sat and read um, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's cynical theories in which they break down uh, cultural theory, which which I was absolutely a student of. I, I, I found it, I've, it was a big kind of shift where I thought, hang on, none of this actually makes sense. It's not real. This is all just language. And the power balance is all about just bullying people into submission. And, and that was a big shock. <laughs> so then I, I began to think, you know, I really, it's not even about, you know, trans rights versus women's rights. What's really happening is just straightforward bullying. Um, so then I did a tweet and asked people to send me... Um, instances which had happened in the arts people I mean I work in visual arts primarily so it's it was mainly visual artists uh, but um, what had happened to people uh, just just for saying working in in studios and in galleries and with curators just for saying that they uh, believe that there is such a thing as sex discrimination and that women are distinct from other people that are living as trans people and that their discrimination is, is based on their biology as women. You know, so th that seems really simple stuff that I thought we'd all accepted, you know, 
30 years ago, to be honest. Uh, and the stories that I got from women working in the arts and men working in the arts, I was really, really shocked. And I knew that it was just the tip of the iceberg. And I knew also that some of the bullying was going on by funded individuals from public funds or from funded organisations and their staff group, again, with public funds. So I was very shocked by that the culture that was developing um, that was just miserable, a miserable, a miserable art sector and, and no way to, you know, make work. And then, of course, the LGB Alliance was awarded a grant of £9,000 for them to make a film about gay men's lives, how they'd changed from the Queen's coronation through to the present day. Just to, just to go back a step, I mean, once I got those case studies, I shared those with my chief executive, uh, and I thought they were very harrowing, and they named names. And again, I didn't... There was a, there was a conversation, but there was no substantive response. And what that said to me was, if women are being harassed out of their jobs in the arts, or being bullied or being silenced, it doesn't matter from the biggest funder of the arts in this country. It doesn't matter. So at that point, I thought, oh God, I'm, I'm beginning to lose the faith, you know, in an organisation that I had a lot of faith in, in individual leaders who I had a lot of faith in. And I, I didn't really know what to do then. I kind of was thinking, I don't know where to go next. They're not listening. Anyway, a month or two later, LGB Alliance applied for a grant from a devolved um, funder, which means that the funding came from the Arts Council, from the National Lottery, um, and uh, there was a hoo-ha about it online. Uh, the grant was suspended because of the malicious um, case from Mermaids, in theory. That was the reason it was suspended. And during that suspension period... Our deputy director held a all team meeting with 400 plus staff to discuss this grant. And prior to that, he came up with a strategy with comms about how he was going to manage that conversation. And he wrote to all staff saying that um, he understood how upset people would be that LGB Alliance had been funded. Uh, so this is in the context of an organisation which the year before distributed 1.2 billion of funding. I mean, that was during cultural recovery, so we did have significant funds at that point, but a huge amount of money had been distributed the year before. So to have a meeting about £9,500 was unheard of. I'd never been to anything like that, you know, ridiculous. I mean, it's tiny, isn't it? It's a tiny amount. Why on earth would you call a meeting our... Um, our workforce at that point was between 650 and 700 staff why would you call a meeting of up to 700 staff to discuss a grant of nine and a half thousand pounds i mean the actual cost of running the meeting would have cost more than the grant <laughs> so attended the meeting um hardly anybody spoke at the meeting it was it was well only two or three people spoke who were senior members of staff Hardly anyone engaged in the meeting, given that there was 411 people at the meeting. 
but there was an active chat session which involved about 25 people and um, our deputy director you know went out of his way to say this isn't about the mechanics of the charity status of the applicant organization uh, which as you know was was um, under this malicious um, attack from another organization um, it wasn't anything to do with that it was because the grant was he regarded the applicant as anti-trans and divisive and in his opinion it shouldn't have been funded and he was working behind the scenes um, uh, because the Arts Council didn't consent and doesn't agree with this grant um, and those were the words he used so I was incredibly shocked by this because I have never seen bias like that at the Arts Council. This, and, and I never have since, to be honest. You know, I have not seen out-and-out out political bias against an applicant organisation in 15 years. So I wouldn't like to say that the Arts Council is biased. It isn't. But in this instance, it was. And I, I was very shocked by that. And, and I expressed that through the chat um, and I also raised how do you protect gender critical applicants and gender critical staff and it was very very hostile 30 minutes it was very unpleasant give me some examples if you can think of any specifics is it just a general atmosphere no it was uh, there was there's a whole lot of chat um that use terms like it's very disappointing to see people defending this person. The chat went on to talk about how the LGBT alliance is the Ku Klux Klan um, of the LGBTQIA plus community. They called them the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, I'm not saying my director called that, but the but some of the staff members used that, those kind of language. Dear God. When I wrote, how will the Arts Council protect gender critical artists and um, Arts Council staff? Another member of staff, you know, a lovely person actually wrote back, replied to me saying, um, that's not our job, where we have to just defend how people feel. Beliefs aren't protected, essentially. It was quite traumatic. Lots and lots of people rang me afterwards. Are you all right? Because, of course, I was the only person that put my neck above the um, parapet. Um, are you OK? You know, senior staff contacted me. Are you OK? And a few days later, a colleague who I didn't know at all also contacted me to say that they had recorded it on their phone. So, you know, it, it was a bit of one of those meltdown moments in an organisation. Uh, everything was swirling. Everybody works online as well. Obviously, it's quite, you know, uh, Zoom culture, I guess. It was very unpleasant. And following that, one of the members of staff that had... Uh, commented against me at that meeting, commented against me three times, then launched a petition which she circulated to all staff saying that gender critical people and members of HR um, who haven't delivered appropriate training um, are, uh, should be subject to a collective grievance. And she was looking for signatures to that grievance, although nobody saw the grievance. And um, she was also looking for comments. And that was hosted on the, the intranet. Um, and it was hosted for 26 hours. And during that period, 
the organisation kind of came to a bit of a halt, I think, where everybody was hovering through this spreadsheet. And you could see, it was really horrible, all of these people inside the spreadsheet, because it was live, so you could see who was in it. People wrote ridiculous statements that I hope they regret. Um, like what? Very abusive. and oh, Gender-critical people are racists. Um, they're cultural parasites, they're homophobes, they're Islamophobes, you know, just... Yada, yada. They should be stamped out. They're a cancer in our organisation. Um, really, you know, if you ran an organisation and that was live in your organisation, you should shut that down. Whatever your viewpoint, you don't want that circulating because that is poisonous doesn't matter what the politics are anyway eventually it was shut down 26 hours later but during that period I was very very upset and I felt very targeted because of course I was the only person at the previous meeting to have had a problem with what was going on to publicly have a problem I know lots of other colleagues also had a problem with what was going on but I was the only one to stand up that must have felt very very lonely and hard I've been there before I know what that feels like it was really really weird and I had a big um family party to organize that weekend it was Easter it was the Easter holidays or Easter weekend and um I had lots of family coming up and I had to go shopping and buy stuff and I was crying in Sainsbury's. I always think if you haven't cried in Sainsbury's, you know, you haven't lived, really. But but seriously, though, I mean, that that is the height of distress, isn't it? That That's horrible. What was going through your head? What was, what was going through your mind? Could you make sense of it? I'd felt it coming, I must say. I had felt it coming for some time, and I'd, I had raised concerns about staff conduct kind of getting out of hand. Um... But, you know, I saw myself as a bit of a tough cookie and it was hard to realise that I was really struggling with it, actually. And then I spent about two or three weeks just crying, which was bizarre because I never cry at anything. <laughs> and I did cry, you know, and, um, yeah, I felt very upset. What then had you decided to do or could you not think clearly about the future at that stage? Well... I mean, the obvious thing to do was to appeal to the adults in the room who I believed were the adults in the room. So I made a complaint. Uh, I'd already complained about the bias that I'd seen displayed against uh, LGBT Alliance and that was being investigated. So I went on to complain about the harassment. I was interviewed for, must have been about nine hours. We had three meetings and I was pretty convinced that uh, the investigator was listening and I felt like the adults were in the room and then it was dismissed. There was no bias. There was no... I wasn't being harassed. Was it immediate that you decided that you would go to lawyers and take a legal case against them? No, no, not at all. I mean, not at all. Although I felt... um, I felt in trouble. Um, 
and and with the bias case, I was trying to flag to others, look, this is bad. We can't we can't be biased grant givers. That's that's not legal. Um, so I was worried about that. But in terms of the harassment, I just assumed I really just assumed that it would just be recognised and I'd get an apology. You know, that's really all I really was thinking about because. You know, it's important to recognise harassment when it happens, because if you don't recognise it, it will happen again. So I just really assumed that, that there wasn't going to be a problem there. So then, but gradually it took so long. It went on for three months. And I thought, you know, if I'm not careful, I'm going to run out of time here. So I did lodge it with ACAS um, because, um, you know, there's a time scale for, for, for lodging tribunal claims. Um, but I never actually thought we'd go there. Well, one, I thought it would be recognised as harassment and I'd get an apology. Uh, and two, I hadn't planned to get into any kind of legal dispute. And even once the case was in at ACAS, I thought, oh, no, no, it won't get to this point, you know. And obviously I was representing myself because I couldn't go to the Unite because I knew, which was our trade union, even though I was a Unite rep. Um, and I was actually the deputy chair of Unite at the Arts Council. I couldn't, I knew that I wouldn't be supported there by Unite. Because of their ideology, their stance on this? Their publication around um, expectations for employers to um, enable people that aren't of the same sex to use same-sex toilets is quite worrying and also because I'd already had complaints from Unite that I was apparently trans- transphobic. So that wasn't an option obviously you'd been... I also thought well I'll just do the paperwork and do it myself you know and and that's what I did and then at some point I started to think I'm getting out of my depth here and I had a conversation with others including Mayor Forstatter and it became clear to me I had to I kind of had to go public. And then gradually I realised that I'd completely lost faith in the Arts Council. Something which, you know, it was like a divorce, that, actually. I, that was that was a big thing because I'd been there for so long and many of the values that the Arts Council um, uh, proposes and is a proponent of, you know, I'd contributed to. And I, I believe... Um, so it was it was a it was devastating actually to lose faith in uh the leadership of the organization because i I had felt that very deeply and worked with them for many years and in fact had been longer had been working there longer than many of the leaders so before this happened with that big online meeting rescinding the grant from l g b alliance would you have called yourself a trans ally? Were you a kind of live and let live? Did you see LGBT rights as kind of indivisible? What What were your politics around it at the time? Um, I would say 2018, I, I was pretty uninformed. I, I didn't really understand the, the division, uh, the divisions that were happening culturally. And I came in, I, I was brought, I got involved because of my role in the trade union um, to look at developing training uh, around trans awareness. 
and and I was very sympathetic to that. I was very sympathetic because I didn't I didn't get it. So if people were being discriminated against, uh, that was important. I needed to know about it. So so I I was pretty sympathetic, and and at some point somebody said to me. Um, well, are you trans rights or are you women's rights? Where do you stand? And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. There's got to be a middle ground, surely. That's quite telling, though, isn't it, as well? What they're saying is... Well, it was a senior member of staff, actually, and, and it was good. It was good that I got that prompt. It is good, because what they're saying is what we argue, which is that no other social justice movement on the planet, credible movement, would ask others to give up their hard-won rights so that they can actually take them. Yeah, and I mean, obviously at that point, I I didn't think that it was about giving up. I thought it was about expanding uh, privilege and rights. And, and, and then, so I started looking at the training that was available um, from, you know, from trans um, rights organisations. And, and I realised that uh, it was inoperable. You know, it couldn't, it, it couldn't be... Uh, delivered in real life, you know the expectations, the demands it was making on people, and um, it was throwing away something very precious around being a woman. You know, there's there's pride in being a woman, um, and then the idea that I'd want to have mixed toilets. I never liked that. So gradually, 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 I started to uh, read up. But honestly really 2018 I was yeah fine go for it okay so what happened when you decided that you would get tooled up with a lawyer and go for it you'd spoken with Maya Forstatter you had recognized that your union wouldn't support you and it was all or nothing take me through the process how it happened um well, initially, I launched the crowd justice. I, I mean, I had spoken to a solicitor. I'd spoken to Liz McGlone at Didlaw, and she was giving me advice, but she wasn't instructed. So the the majority of the initial paperwork I, I did, and it wasn't great, you know, it was best I could, but obviously I'm, I'm a lay person. Um, and it, the, the Leeds Tribunal was very quick. Once, you know, it's... I made the claim in September. I had the preliminary hearing in December. It was it was moving very very quickly, um, and I began to realise I was I was getting into trouble. I didn't really understand the the uh, detail of the Equality Act, which or or the application of the Act. So, um, and I also met with LGB Alliance and discussed with them, you know, what was going on. Um, they were very supportive met with Maya and, and we decided to set up the crowd justice and I set that up as a private site and just invited people that I knew um, and it was private to begin with and then at some point I thought I'm going to have to go for it. It's either... At some point I thought I've got to win this, it's important that I win this, it's important for all those people that, um, that I'd found the case studies of, all those individuals in the arts that were being harassed for believing what the vast majority of the country believes. Um, and I, I realised I had to win it. I couldn't just, forgive the phrase, kind of fanny around. <laughs> well, and that you, you understood the implications were wide-ranging. And it was a public interest case, as all of these cases are. So it's a big burden to carry, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It, uh, and then, so in order to publicise it... I then did a story with the Telegraph, 
and that was basically my last day at work. I mean, I, I, I took annual leave to do the story and then I went on sick leave and uh, it was quite terrifying and I felt terrible. I mean, I felt, I did warn my employer beforehand to say there's going to be a story in a couple of days um, so that their comms were ready. And um, But yeah, it did, it felt treacherous. It felt it felt deeply treacherous, but it all, I also felt that it was the right thing to do. Which it was, because obviously uh, the tribunal agreed with you. So tell us about the planks of the case and then what the judgment actually says and means. I mean, we applied for two, two uh, counts of harassment and two counts of victimisation. If I'd had a solicitor from September, if I'd perhaps grasped the enormity of the case, I think we would have won more. But we ended up winning one count of harassment and losing the other three. But the one count of harassment was that um, I was harassed for being gender critical. And the other two, uh, the other count of harassment and one of the other counts of victimisation see some significant criticism, although they don't meet the legal threshold uh, in the ruling. And some of the criticism is that by taking a partisan position against the LGB Alliance or against the applicant organisation, um, the deputy director opened the door to my future harassment. And the fact that the petition was held up for so long, um, in the end, didn't count as victimisation, but it did count, well, it, didn't, it, didn't, it doesn't have a legal count, but it is critical, judges were critical of that decision to leave that there for so long. So the implications of this, and also, of course, the organisation didn't follow the ACAS code because there was no right to appeal. They didn't go through a grievance process. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the implication of, of this is, I hope, that arts employers start really thinking about belief uh, discrimination on the grounds of belief um, within their EDI policies and within their um, employer, employee and how they deliver services and goods. And we've seen that already, haven't we, at the uh, Pump House um, People's History Museum in Manchester. Yes, yet another example of this absolute batshit crazy ideology taking hold in across institutions and organisations. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's very simple. You have to deliver the, the public sector equality duty. You have to give equal um, services and duties to all people. And um, you don't have to listen to staff groups that want you to discriminate. What did it feel like to you when the decision came back from the tribunal? Oh, it felt brilliant. It felt brilliant. I was really glad. It only took a month. I thought it was going to take months and months. It felt really significant for the arts. It felt like, because the arts is absolutely captured by gender ideology. And arts leaders, whether they believe it or not, and many don't, I know they don't, um, feel absolutely harangued by staff groups um, and, and Twitter mobs and, you know, tiny niche ideas, really. Um, so it felt like, it. right, great, now we can start to have this conversation properly. Come and talk to me. Let's work out a way to manage everybody's rights properly 
legally. You know, you just can't run around bullying women. As as many of us have devoted time, energy and money to prove, and those of us that can, and I speak for you and I um, and, and many other women who've taken cases and some men, is that because we are able to do this, we have a roof over our heads, we have other employment opportunities, ways of making money, we have supportive friends and families. We can do this, can't we? And we have to do it in order to support those that we will never know the names of. But it it, it has a cost, doesn't it? It has a cost, a personal cost. So what's the, what, what's the future for you, bearing in mind what you've been through and how you've had to put your neck on the line? Well, I'm not quite sure what, what's going to happen next, I have to admit. I don't really know. I mean, I'd, I'd reached, you know, personally, I'd reached a point in my life where I'm not looking after children anymore, really. So, as a, you know, I've got more time. And I did feel a strong sense of responsibility towards young women. Um, if, if middle-aged women aren't doing it, how are they going to do it, you know? So, for me personally... Um, I I really don't know what's going to happen next. I really don't know, but I'm I'm really pleased I've done it. I'm really confident, and I will be making a difference in the arts. I'm not letting go. New job, new job, a new consultancy, maybe freelance work. Any clue as to where we might find you next? We're having lots of conversations about how to support arts leaders in in the future and. And, and how to kind of bring back all of those policies just to the law as it stands, which, you know, the Equality Act isn't simple. We don't need to go past it. Delivering that alone is hard enough. <laughs> um, so we're, we're having lots of conversations and, and with myself and with other artists and, and other leaders in the arts. And, you know, we just want to bring it back to a bit more of a hopeful and positive place to work, really. Well, I'm sure I speak for... The, at least the majority of the listeners, when I say that we'll support you however we can, and also to say thank you for bringing this case on behalf of all women. Mm, thanks, Julie. Thanks. It means a lot. <laughs>